late in the first century A.D., Peter, a follower of Jesus Christ, wrote to people who were locked away in exile these words. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether emperor or governor. For it is God's will that you should silence the talk of ignorant and foolish men. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether emperor or governor, for it is the Lord's will that you should silence the talk of foolish and ignorant men. Does it matter that he wrote those words when Nero was emperor? This is as bad as it gets. Some of us have a problem with leadership today. We don't think the leaders are doing the right thing. We don't like their policies, the decisions that they make. And so we get all rankled up and we tell our friends and then we try to uh, storm Washington every four years and replace them with somebody else who will do it right. But in Peter's day, Nero was emperor. This is a guy who tried to kill his wife multiple times tried to kill his wife's mother multiple times. When he failed, he finally put her on a boat, sent her across the lake, then sent people out to sink the boat. Um, and she survived it. And later, when he succeeded in killing her at the funeral, he feigned this mourning and big stage. And everyone knew he was faking, but he was Nero. He does what he wants. This is someone who lights Christians on fire someone who blames Christians for everything wrong with his beleaguered empire. This is Nero. For the Lord's sake, submit to every authority, whether emperor or governor, for it is God's will that you should silence the talk of ignorant and foolish people. Peter has the right to talk about this. Peter says, manifest a life of love. For love covers a multitude of sins, both yours and theirs. You should be hospitable and open your home and your life to other people. You should serve one another with generosity. And whenever you speak, it should be as though God was speaking through you. You should speak as though these were the very words of God. You are not speaking for him. You are speaking as him. And when you serve, you should serve with generosity, using the gifts and abilities that the Lord has given you. So it is time to talk about resistance. When I started this uh, series on exile some weeks ago, I was immediately met by some of you who uh, insisted that I had forgotten the other half of history. That is, there were several in history that by being silent were either excommunicated and they were marginalized, and this was wrong. You, you graciously pointed that out. You said that I had forgotten the Holocaust and that 
I had forgotten the abolitionist movement and that I maybe couldn't even remember Martin Luther King Jr. And, and uh, maybe that we should temper some of these comments about living in exile by those obvious facts in history. So, first of all, thank you for pointing that out. I listened to it, I heard it, I stored it, I filed it away, and I hope I can, uh, I hope I can speak not only for them today, but really with them uh, all around me. Some years ago, I was speaking in the Carolinas, and while I was there, a friend of mine, Bob Black, asked that I've ever heard of a place called Freedom Hill. So I said I hadn't. He said, you should go see the place. And so one afternoon, I went on the campus of Southern Wesleyan University where they picked this old church up and moved it to Southern and put it there as one of their signature buildings. The church was started uh, by a fellow named Adam Crooks. He was saved at the age of 14, sanctified at the age of 16. When he was 23 years old, uh, he was in a conference in the state of Ohio, and he felt that the Lord told him he should go to Carolina to plant a church. And so when he went down there, he began to speak out immediately against the evils of slavery in the South. He was immediately labeled an agitator, an irritant, one person called him a traitor to the white race. He was not allowed to speak publicly while on the courthouse grounds because he was a Wesleyan. And Wesleyans were known in that day as being outspoken proponents for freedom and advocates of abolition. And so, believe it or not, the North Carolina judges ruled consistently that the Constitution did not apply to true Wesleyans. In spite of this, Crooks continued to preach against the evils of slavery. Multiple times he was dragged out of the pulpit, out back, beaten with their fists. Twice he survived an attempt to poison him, and a third time an attempt to assassinate him when people thought that he had friends nearby, though he did not. Finally, in 1851, he was prosecuted for handing out religious tracts that included the Ten Commandments. The abolitionists in those days, mostly in the Holiness Church, which is where you're sitting right now, believed that slavery was quote-unquote man-stealing, and so they preached against theft as a form of slavery. And when he was passing out religious tracts that had the Ten Commandments, he was once again accused of stirring up agitation. He was prosecuted and forbade to practice his faith inside of North Carolina. He then moved away. Mekijah McPherson was a layman inside this tiny church near Snow Camp, North Carolina, where he planted that church. McPherson picked up this mantle of speaking against slavery and crusading against it until one day they grabbed him and hung him by the neck until they thought he was dead. Then they came back later in order to cut him down so they said they could use the rope to go hang other Wesleyans. They didn't know McPherson was still alive. His wife nursed him back to health. He lived until he was 85 years old. 
while I stood inside of that chapel and I looked at the artifacts in the back of that chapel, including the old wooden door with 11 bullet holes in it where people fired shots into the assembly hoping to disrupt the church service of the abolitionists, my mind went back to the first church that I pastored at Pullins Corner in Romulus, Michigan. It was a tiny church. Only a few people in it, but it had a rich history. Also built in the middle of the 1800s, the Romulus Church was part of the Underground Railroad. When they picked up the old church, which was closer to the corner of what they called Five Points, in order to move it back so they could attach it to the new brick building that they built in the 1950s, they discovered something strange. There was a tunnel that was dug out underneath that church. Right behind the pulpit was a trap door. <laughs> I was so thankful they didn't use it while I was preaching. <laughs> and underneath the trap door was the tunnel, and the tunnel went underneath the street, and it resurfaced inside of a small grocery on the other side where slaves could be hidden during the day. And then they would resurface on the other side. They would be given supplies, enough to last for the trip across the river into Canada. Freedom Hill, the Romulus Church, churches in Indiana, and some churches in Michigan were all part of what is known as the Underground Railroad. It was a complex system that was devised by devoutly religious people in order to liberate people that were slaves. So much of the freedom that we have in our culture today is the result of religious people who held true to their beliefs. When Hillary Clinton stood inside of a church in upstate New York some 20 years ago to commemorate the freedom of women's rights, she didn't know it, but she was standing inside of a holiness church, signifying again the role that conscientious and courageous religious people have had in the founding of our country. So I did some reading in these old holiness people, and two things stood out to me. One is their courage. These people were fiercely courageous. They were willing to disobey the law when everyone around them watched them and said, if you're Christians, how can you act like that? How can you do that? Now, 150 years later, everyone wonders, what if they hadn't? These were people that believed in the law, that practiced the law, but they believed in something even more. They believed in their God and they believed in the scripture. And so they stood when they had to stand. And can I just say right from the very beginning, the holiness movement is no stranger to resistance. I start this way so you understand that you're sitting inside of a church that gets it. Most of what we value today in our culture, freedom and generosity and liberation and equal rights, all of the things that are hot topics today that everyone stands for, the holiness movement has consistently stood for long before anyone else did. Remember, we were smuggling slaves in 1857, the very 
very year that the Supreme Court decided that slaves had no legal rights. We get it. And so when the holiness movement talks about resistance, it is never about asking society to get pulled back into some part of the past. We have always been ahead of our time. We're more constitutional than the Supreme Court. And so when we resist, we're not pulling society back. We're asking society to catch up. We're stating things everyone knows is true 50 years from now. We are ahead of our time. Courage was the first thing. The second was their disposition. These were good people. These people were not angry. They were radical and they were extreme, but they were not militant and they were not violent. They were kind and they were generous. They were willing to die for their beliefs, but they were not willing to kill for them. And I think it's important that these two things go together when we talk about resistance, isn't it? We must be courageous on the one hand, but we must remain good people. Sometimes we lose our goodness in a cause. And so what gets us marginalized is not really our cause. It is our lack of goodness. Ecclesiastes said, there is a time to be silent and a time to speak. I can never get the times right. <laughs> because I'm an external processor, I think while I talk. I don't know what I think until I start talking. Is there any other in the room that bears this curse? And so the moment an injustice occurs, I talk in order to think. And while I am talking to myself, I listen to myself. And while I'm listening to myself, I start believing myself. So I start thinking, that's a really good point. And then I'll say some more stuff and think, no, wait a minute, I'm more right than I know. <laughs> and the longer I talk, I can think, no, I'm right and they're wrong and keep talking, and finally come out with, we need to get about six guys in a pickup and go take care of things. <laughs> I can do this in just like about minutes. There is a time to be silent and a time to speak. And the time to be silent is when the injustice has first occurred. That is not the time to talk. That is the time to be silent. We have a tendency to think when we start talking that our authority comes from the fact that we are right. It doesn't. It comes from the fact that we are holy. 
The authority that the remnant has is not political authority, it's a moral authority. And so you don't get it while you talk, you get it while you are silent. When the injustice first occurs, it is time to be silent. It is time to grieve the loss. It is time to let go, to cease from striving to examine one's interior parts to see if any of the evil we oppose has in fact gotten into us. That is the time to be silent. That's where our moral authority comes from, you guys. It doesn't come from our argument. It comes from our soul, from our being. And being is formed in silence. And then there is the time to speak. And when it is time to speak, it is time to be firm and bold, unwavering, and yet humble, teachable, flexible, adjustable. In the next couple weeks, we're going to look at characters in the Old Testament who we think modeled some of these characteristics of people that were sent to their room in the margins. And what these people found was a way to lead power from their room. One of those was Daniel. Daniel... Uh, is a young man who was sent to his room in exile and stayed there the entire duration of exile. And he found a way to lead people in the center without trying to get back to the center. He was both a saint and a friend of sinners. He was close to God and he was close to leaders who hated God. So I'm asking myself as I read Daniel's story, the first six chapters in the book of Daniel, read it when you get home, is there really such a thing as a secular saint? A saint of the secular? Someone who knows how to love God fearlessly and yet he gets along with people who hate God boldly. Daniel was that character. In Daniel chapter 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the king ordered his court officials to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family, and among these was Daniel. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Did you know that was almost 70 years Here's a guy hauled off into exile who survives four dynasties at a time in history when the new dynasty was killing everybody in the old one. He found a way to survive four dynasties and be effective with four different leaders over a 70-year time span. This guy has something to say. So as I'm reading the first six chapters in the book of Daniel, I try to distill what I can learn from this. Because there are people in my life 
that I would like to influence that I think are too powerful? Am I the only one? Is there not someone in your life that you think has too much power? Someone in your life who is over you in authority, who is doing it wrong? Someone who, when you're in their presence, you're a little bit afraid of them and it wouldn't bother you a bit to see them just removed and someone else take their place? No? There will be. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. There will be. So hold that person or that possibility in mind and read with me the book of Daniel. Here's the first thing I discover. It's what Daniel knew almost no one else did. God is present when you're in exile. This is a huge lesson. To the common Jew, there were three symbols that God was present, only three. One of them was the land, one of them was the temple, and the other one was the king. As long as the Jew was sitting in his land, following the king and worshiping in the temple, he had all the evidence that he needed that God was present. Why not? God was the one who gave them all three. Said to, said to Abraham, I will give you that land. He appointed Saul as their first king, and he ordered them to build the temple as his house. And so the Jew knew, as long as we're in the land following the king, worshiping in the temple, God is present. But in the first two verses of Daniel chapter 1, all three of them are taken away. They lost their land when the Babylonians came in, gathered them up, and moved them to another country. No more land. They lost their king when before their eyes they made Jehoiakim watch while they slaughtered his sons. And then they put his own eyes out. And then they put him in chains and led him off in a procession with an army. On that day, Israel knew that the sun was setting on their beloved land. And they lost their temple when the Babylonians busted down the wall, went in, started burning burning the temple, and then to add insult to injury, gathered the sacred artifacts, the texts, the furniture, everything that was sacred in the temple and hauled it off to the temple in Babylon and put it before their little God. If you were a Jew, you'd be pretty angry about this, but there is nothing you can do about it. You are a victim and you were powerless. On that day, the Jews must have pushed back and thought, we have lost not only our temple and our king, we have lost the presence of God himself. Daniel knew better. All the way through Daniel's story, you see the work of God in ways that nobody else sees it. It is God who fills the young people with spiritual gifts. It is God who interprets the dream for the king. It is God who writes on the wall with an invisible hand. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. In chapter 6, it is God who shuts the mouths of the lions. In chapter 9, it is God who responds when the prophet prays for three weeks. Daniel looks at it and says, even when God seems absent, he is present. And even when it looks like God is inactive, he is still at work. Listen, we can't forget this. Even though we've been sent to the margins and we cannot have the center back, it doesn't mean 
that God is not in control. And it doesn't mean that God is not active. God is always active. If we forget this, we will become overactive. We will try to convince people before it is time for them to be convinced. We will try to do God's fighting for him. If you get nothing else, get this. God is capable of fighting for himself. He doesn't need a little remnant to take up his cause. The battle is always the Lord's. You need only stand firm. You do not have to take charge of the world. You simply need to remember God is in charge of the world. Whoever seems to be in charge of the world. Amen. So, now that you're in the margins, and you know in your head that long before I get into that room and start speaking to power, God has been talking for years. Now that you know this, what do you actually say to lead people who are in power? Now I've got to go fast because I'm worried. Take the word lead. Lead. L-E-A-D. I don't almost never do this. But so you can remember these parts. So they will serve you when you find yourself in some authority's office and trying to represent a different point of view. Can I speak to you as one who both leads and follows? L. Choose loyalty over your agenda. Most religious people try to lead with an agenda. They believe that their argument is tight, they have data on their side, their facts are right, and so they go into the person's room and they start to lead with their agenda. They say, this is the cause that we believe in. But the trouble is, people in authority need loyalty more than they need your ideas. This may surprise some of you, until you get into a position where you're leading something. And when you start to lead it, you will know this almost immediately. People that are leaders are almost never as self-confident as they appear to be. They're, they're not afraid that they're going to upset you. The more powerful they are, the less they care but they need people around them to be loyal to them so that when they do something else, they're afraid that they'll disappoint you. They're not worried about picking you off. But the closer you get to people in power, the less they want to disappoint you. And the way that you get close to power is to lead with loyalty, not with agenda. We are not very good at this. The public in general does not sense at large that religious people are loyal to them. 
I mean, I can save you the statistics, but everything I read from multiple sources indicates that what people in the center feel is that the religious people always have another agenda. We're always trying to get them on to our pet topics. Good, I finally got you into the subject of abortion. Can I tell you how I feel about abortion? No, just be loyal for a while. Don't try to convert me. Not yet. Be my friend. Tell me you believe in me. Tell me you want me to succeed. Tell me you got my back. Tell me you'll defend me. I'm not interpreting that as you're buying everything. If you're in leadership, you need a friend. So be a friend. Not a crusader. Not yet. Are we good? E. Excellence. Instead of privilege. Whenever a religious person has been denied a right in America, the way that religious people appeal to that is to argue for civil rights. We always say, we have a constitution, and your constitution demands that I get treated fairly with everyone else. But the problem is, when you're Daniel in Babylon, there is no constitution. There is no bill of rights. There's no fair play. It's I, the jury, Nebuchadnezzar. And so you can't really appeal to the fact that all men are created equal, that we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Nebuchadnezzar and incredibly secular organizations do not recognize that. You can't depend on that. You have to lead with your body of work. So in Daniel 2, when the king has a dream and he can't interpret it, he says to all of his magicians, every one of you are going to die. Your full-time job is to interpret my dream, and you can't do it. I want every enchanter and magician in the kingdom to die. And Daniel says, take me to the king. I'll go to the Lord and I'll find the meaning of his dream and then I'll talk to the king. In other words, the fulcrum of Daniel's power is not in his freedom or in his privilege or his right to exist. It is in the fact that he is better at something than someone else and the king needs it. What helps the remnant survive in exile is that we bring to the center value that the center needs. What does this mean? We should be the smartest, most diligent, most studious, most disciplined, most ambitious people in the entire country. Can I go to preaching for a second? We should not be fooling around, checking our Facebook or our text messages, updating our status every 16 seconds when we're there to work for Nebuchadnezzar. You work for Nebuchadnezzar, work for Nebuchadnezzar. 
You say, well, I'm not intelligent. I'm not especially bright. I don't have a lot of power. Can you work? Are you ambitious? Are you willing to work harder than everyone else in the company? You're necessary. But if all you are is young and talented, you're a dime a dozen. There's another lot right behind you who's coming. They can't wait to have your position. Don't let them outwork you. Don't let them study harder than you study. Every time you go into power, you must have a body of work that when the king or the authority looks at it, he can say to you in effect, I don't need you, but I need what you do. Because I don't have anybody who does that. All right, unpreach. A alternatives instead of complaints. Whenever we get pushed out of the center, we often lead with what we don't like and what is unfair and what's wrong and you ought to change that. You blew it. You were wrong. Now you need to change that. The problem, and this may surprise you, is that people who have power generally do what they think they have to do in order to succeed. No one in power is deliberately trying to wreck things. Now, it may seem like it to you, but they're not. They're simply responding to the data that was in front of them all the time. And so when Daniel says to the king's servant, he says, we're not going to eat your food. He doesn't say that. He simply says to the servant, is it possible that we could not eat the king's food? Can we just eat something else? You know what the servant said? He said, if I let you do that, in a few weeks, you'll be skinnier than everybody else, and then the king will have my head. I can't do that. What does Daniel say? Well, I'm sorry. I'm a religious person. We don't eat that kind of pagan food. Or does he say, give us 10 days. You know, let us eat what we want to eat for 10 days. And if it doesn't work, then we'll go back and eat your food. But at the end of 10 days, stand us next to the other servants, and if we're stronger than they are, then you have every reason to let us eat our food. The servant says, you're on. People in power need alternatives, not ultimatums. What does this mean for us? It means when we want to resist authority, we have to know all the data that the authority knows. It really does help to look into the facts at the things that motivate the power to do what the power is doing so that when we have something to say, we've considered it and we have a fresh, creative, bold alternative. Sometimes, I discovered if I knew what the authority knew, I might have done what the authority did. D, determination instead of despair. Some years ago, a long time ago, I was 
sitting in a council in the city of Marion with the superintendent of schools. This was a few years ago, and so I, I, I think I can say it without anyone here knowing who it is. And there was a handful of ministers in the room, and the superintendent was talking about uh, all of the things that he needed to change. He'd been here a year, and he said, things have to change, and they have to change fast. I decided it was best to say nothing on that day until, we, until he said that. Then finally, I said, uh, uh, sir, if things have got to change that fast, then you probably should wait. He said, to the contrary, this is urgent, and we need immediate radical change. There is not time to wait. I said, sir, if there isn't time to wait, all the more reason to wait. If you want your changes to be institutionalized, so that the organization will live with them after you are gone, you have to slow down. He said, I can't slow down. I will make the changes. I said, if you do that now, you will be released and someone will follow you and change back everything you just did. He said, there isn't time. He made his changes. He lasted two years. And what do you think happened? Someone came along and reverted again to everything he changed. It's the story of politics in America. What is needed in our city, you guys, is a group of devoted people who are determined to stay with the system over time. When we went into the Slocum School to start mentoring kids, do you know the first thing they said to us? When are you leaving? They didn't say thank you. They said, when are you leaving? Like everyone else. Because that's what religious people do. They talk, and then when it looks like it's not working, they despair, and then they leave. What is needed is a group of faithful, bold, cheerful, happy souls who are willing to stay in the struggle over a long period of time. The changes will seem imperceptible, really, by degrees, but by the time we're done, they will be permanent and they will be vast. Be loyal. Be excellent. Offer alternatives. Be determined.